So case six from the Blue Cliff record is Yuan Men's Every Day is a Good Day. Yuan Men taught, I don't ask about before the 15th of the month. Come tell me something about after the 15th of the month. And he himself replied, every day is a good day. So the 15th of the month is traditionally the full moon in the ancient lunar calendar in China. And the full moon is a symbol of the awakened mind. So Yun Men is asking, I'm not asking about before the 15th of the month. Come tell me something about after the 15th of the month. And he himself answered, every day is a good day. So in a conventional sense, of course, every day is not a good day. In a conventional sense, there's distress and suffering and anger and loneliness and confusion and injustice and even just a kind of restless unsatisfactoriness. So obviously in a conventional sense, every day is not a good day. But Yun Men said that it, that it is, that every day is a good day. So it's worth us really checking this out. And Yun Men is one of the great Chan masters of China. Uh, he lived in the sort of mid-900s to the mid-10-hundreds. Uh, he had 60 Dharma heirs. He was renowned for his short, his short words, small numbers of words in his teaching and sometimes his gestures. And uh, he was one of the first teachers to really take the dialogues of Zen masters and use them as a way to teach the monks. And that was part of the development of the whole koan training uh, that flourished in China and Japan and is now here in America and is loved by both Soto and Rinzai traditions in, in different sorts of ways. So Yunmen is, you know, one of the greats. So his words are really worth hanging out with. There's six of his cases in the Mumon Khan, the great, the gateless barrier out of 48. And then in the Blue Cliff record, out of a hundred cases, 18 of them feature Yunmen. And this is case six from the Blue Cliff record. And I thought that you can enter any one teaching takes you to all the other teachings. And uh, I came across a term talking with Kokyo today that relates this to the Dharma interfusion. 
you just take one entry point and you'll go to all the other teachings. So I thought we could explore this sentence, every day is a good day, by beginning at looking at cause and effect and seeing where that takes us. And I, I found just a brief description online of cause and effect, and I'll just read it out to sort of very straightforward, but just to give us a sort of a, an opening, still an opening. One of the foundations of Buddhism is the law of cause and effect. Without knowing this deeply, one, not, one cannot understand Buddhism or move forward on the path. Every effect has a cause and a condition. A cause and a condition combine to make an effect. All effects have a cause. All effects have a condition. There are no exceptions. A law within Buddhism is a rule that penetrates the three worlds and ten directions. The three worlds are past, present and future. The ten directions are north, south, east, west, northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest, up and down. The three worlds represent all time, infinity, always. The ten directions means any place, anywhere, all countries on earth, all of the universe. So the law of cause and effect is applicable everywhere and it never changes. Even if society changes, this fundamental law in Buddhism never will. To give an example, let's look at rice. <laughs> in order for there to be rice, there needs to be a rice seed. But just a rice seed alone cannot make rice. Proper water, sunlight, soil and labour are required to harvest the rice. A rice seed dropped on the floor will never grow. Being born human is an effect. And so this must have a cause. Though we are all born human, the lives we are born into are all different. These different effects must have different causes. So each life has its own different cause. For example, the location we're born in, like Africa, Japan, or the United States, and the era we are born into differs. Now there are situations that occur in which we do not know the cause. Yet there has to be a cause for those too. Something that happens accidentally doesn't mean it is without a cause. It is simply not yet known or the evidence is not yet available. And I think with cause and effect, we have a bit of a tendency to be a little linear when we think about it. But it might be more fruitful to try and think of cause and effect in a sort of a more three-dimensional way, maybe a little bit like a three-dimensional spider's web. Or maybe we could even use the, the imagery of Indra's net, where the relationships uh, are so complex and so varied and interact with each other in so many different ways across vast periods of time and space that it's just a, like a ball of web <laughs> that we can't disentangle. But we don't need to disentangle it anyway. We just need to know that, that it is so. 
and I was thinking of an example of something that happened with my dog a few months ago. I, I got up at 5 a.m. and my dog sleeps on my bed. And so I opened the front door so he could go outside to pee. And just at that moment, a coyote was walking down the sidewalk. And I didn't see this happen, but I just heard this incredible sound of a coyote and a dog sort of interacting with each other. And I rushed out and chased away the coyote and brought in my dog. And for the first day or so, I had the basic thought, a coyote attacked my dog. And I wasn't especially upset about it, but that was just how I understood it. A coyote attacked my dog. And then I just started to reflect on causes and conditions and thought about how the coyote was just walking down the street. It was just like minding its own business. And I opened the door and my dog went out and suddenly saw this coyote just going past the front of his house. And so my guess is he just ran straight at the coyote. And the coyote, she got a fright and just turned around and bit my dog, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for a coyote to do. And then I rushed out and chased the coyote away and off she went. And I thought about different things. Like it had been during the fires. And so the coyote was maybe there because of the fires. You know, its land, its, its habitat had been burned and so it was somewhere else. It may not be so, but it might be so. And those fires are partly caused by climate change, probably. And then I thought about how climate change has a lot to do with fossil fuels and combustion engines. So I thought about how whoever invented the combustion engine had an, a possible influence on the coyote biting my dog. And I thought about, too, that I was up at 5 a.m. because our Zazen starts at 5.45. And I don't know who began that tradition for Santa Cruz Zen Center. Maybe it was Catherine. Maybe it was Coben. Maybe it was Jean and Patrick in Kokyo. But they had an influence on the coyote biting my dog because I wouldn't have got up at that time. And then another thought that I had was I got up at five because I like to have a cup of black tea with a little bit of soy milk and sugar or chai, actually, before I sit Zazen. And why do I do that? Because the British invaded Australia and brought my ancestors, convicts, with them. And I drink tea. And they got that tea from India. And so I also happen to drink chai, which is not related to that. That's because I married someone who was Indian. And the Buddha was from India, so that's a nice little circle. But all of those things resulted in the coyote biting my dog. And this is just one, I think, kind of small way that we can take something, even an unpleasant thing, and make it almost majestic. I mean, how extraordinary. All of these things. And this is just a fraction of what caused that a moment to occur, just a fraction of it. But the oil in the ground. And then I thought about that TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies, from years and years ago, which kind of glorified oil and maybe had part of why people really got quite enamored by oil, which also caused climate change, which also led to those CZU fires. So we can just, if we just let ourselves 
make these hypotheses and they don't even have to be accurate but just to go into seeing the relationships it really creates such a rich richness in our life even with unfortunate circumstances Uh, and I was thinking about how one of the things that uh, often leads us to not have such a good day in the general sense of our experience is when we are concerned about the question, why did they do that? Why did that person do that thing that we don't like? Uh, that's a pretty strong trigger for people wondering why someone did something. And I think often we don't go very far with the question. We keep it fairly kind of uh, rhetorical. We don't actually really answer it. But if we let ourselves really answer that question, it becomes actually a much more interesting question. And the, the discomfort, the sense of incredulousness or judgmentalness that we have or fear is sort of more likely to diminish a little bit if we really let ourselves go into why did they do that? Or it could be for ourselves in a compassionate sense. Why did I do that? Why did I make a mistake that way? Why did I lose my cool? Or why did I fumble in the way that I did and get nervous? We can compassionately answer that question, really go into it. Well, we can ask all the questions about our history. We can reflect on our history, reflect on all the different factors. And it turns these small, somewhat difficult events into something really rich and beautiful and instructive. We can begin to see ourselves more in all of the different characters in, in the event. You know, today, for example, I've spoken with a lot of people who have been quite upset about what's been happening at Capitol Hill with the storming of Capitol Hill. But if we actually just really put ourselves in those people's shoes and go, oh, what, 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 I wonder why they are doing that. What are the factors that lead to them doing that? And really see ourselves in them. It, it takes on a very different tone. Because it's not just our imagination imagining ourselves being them. We are actually them. They aren't somebody else. Those people aren't other people. Those people are us. And if we can really be curious about ourselves as them, everything takes on a different, a different tone, a much more uh, kind, compassionate, less confusing, less fearful tone, it changes. It becomes actually manageable. It becomes manageable and, and when, when our emotions settle down and things become manageable, then if there is a role for us to play in relieving suffering in some way in relation to that, we're more likely to actually do it effectively. So there's very good reason, not just for our own mental ease, but because we'll be actually a much more effective person in our, in our uh, bodhisattva vow, we'll be more effective if our, if we see ourselves in all those other 
people. In relation to that question of people being somewhat shocked when somebody does something, I think we have a tendency to assume that we would do better than that other person if we were in that situation. I think many of us have a little bit of arrogance that way. We don't mean to, and it's okay. (laughs) We have it because of causes and conditions. But there is a bit of a habit of mind often people have like, well, I wouldn't have done that. If I was in that situation, I would do this, this, and this. But actually, well, before saying the next point, and some of us may have the tendency to do the opposite and think, oh, my gosh, I would never be able to do that. I'm not good enough to do that. You know, if we focus on other people being better than us, we would be self-deprecating. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have made a terrible mess if I'd done that. Both, Both of those are delusional. Both of those are not beneficial to us. But we still can be compassionate to ourselves when we do do that because we're doing it because of all the causes and conditions of our past that lead us to have the various different tendencies that we have. But this idea that we would would do better or we would do differently, I think it's good for us to really see that that is a delusion. That is just not so. If we had the same situation as those people, we'd do exactly the same thing they're doing. If we had the same life, the same conditions, and the same ancestry, we'd just be doing what they're doing. And that's, that's a, it's a really wonderful thing to contemplate that. It's very humbling. And it's also very intimate. It, it helps us not be so judgmental. And I think it also gives us a lot of relief. It's a relief not to feel blame. It's a relief not to feel superior or to feel inferior or to be judgmental. It's a real relief. And another way in which I think it's a relief, just contemplating cause and effect in general, is we start to understand and really feel that everything makes sense. And we don't have to know how it makes sense, but we can trust that it just completely and utterly makes sense. Nothing is happening in a completely random way. If it were possible, we could track all the causes and conditions. And I think there's something very uh, comforting about knowing that it all makes sense. And it's okay that we don't know how it makes sense. We can just make up a hypothetical approximation and that will do. And in realizing that everything makes sense, we can also see that because it all makes sense, it is faultless. There's no fault. No one is at fault. There's no fault. And in that sense, it is perfect. Everything exactly as it is, is the perfect expression of everything that has gone before it. And it can't be any other way. 
And this teaching on perfection, I think, is quite a subtle teaching. This is one way of entering that teaching is a close examination of cause and effect leading to this idea of faultlessness and that things make sense. And then we can start to see it is actually the perfect expression. Which, of course, doesn't mean it's a pleasant expression or a fair expression in the, in the sense of morally fair or morally just. But it is a perfect expression. And uh, have I got time? Yes, I think I have time. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, his very famous poem, Call Me By My True Names, I think captures a lot of this. So I'd like to read a little preface that he wrote before he wrote the poem, a little description about before he wrote this poem, and then I'll read out the poem. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. After the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us in Plum Village. We received hundreds of letters each week from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand and the Philippines, hundreds each week. It was very painful to read them. We tried our best to help, but the suffering was enormous and sometimes we were discouraged. It is said that half the boat people fleeing Vietnam died in the ocean. Only half arrived on the shores of Southeast Asia. There are many young girls, boat people, who were raped by sea pirates. One day we received a letter telling us about a young girl in a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn of something like that, you, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, that is easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In our meditation, in my meditation, I saw if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I would now be the pirate there is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day, and if educators, social workers, politicians and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years, a number of them will become pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates in 25 years. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it, there are three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is Please Call Me By My True Names, because I have so many names. When I hear one of these names, I have to say yes. So I'll just read the poem. <clears throat> Please call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, even today I am still arriving. Look deeply, every second I am arriving, to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in a new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone, 
I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the Mayflower metamorphizing on the surface of the water. I am the bird which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the Mayflower. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has, the, who has to pay his debt of blood to his people, dying slowly in a forced labour camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. So as I said at the start, sinking into this possibility that every day is a good day doesn't mean that there isn't going to be pain and that there aren't going to be difficult days. And it wouldn't be wise to tell someone that every day is a good day when they're having a bad day. But for ourselves in our own practice, we can really consider Yun Men's statement, his teaching, that after the 15th of the month, every day is a good day. And really work at could this be true for me which of course it can be true for all of us can we cultivate that in our own lives and what would that look like it's not out of our reach i want to finish with another case of young men's from the gateless barrier Case 39, Yunmen, you have misspoken. A monk said to Yunmen, the radiance serenely illumines the whole universe. Before he had finished the line, Yunmen interrupted him and asked, aren't those the words of Chang Cho? The monk said, yes, they are. Yunmen said, you have misspoken. Later, the master Su Xin took up the matter and asked, tell me, where did the monk misspeak? What we want to do with Yun Men's teaching is make it our own. Not have it be Yun Men's anymore. Have it be our own. Have us know that every day is a good day. 
and know it in every fiber of our body and experience it, that every day is a good day. Make it our teaching. And I think in that way we will be able to fulfill our vows of relieving suffering in the world much more effectively. It's not really for our personal sake any more that it's for the sake of everyone else. It's for our collective sake that we want to make every day a good day. And Patrick said something the other day which I really liked. He said, Bodhisattvas only see Bodhisattvas. And I asked him about it and he sent me back this quote from Dogen. When we abide in our moon mind, we only see moonlight. The moon swallows the moon. So when we see every day is a good day, we see everybody as bodhisattvas, we see everything is making sense, and we see perfection. This good day is just not dependent on conditions. So it's very powerful to see every day as a good day. I think I'll finish there. Let's do our closing chant dedication and then people can stay for announcements or they can leave and then we'll, we can do some questions and comments for those who want to stay on. <clears throat> so I just want to dedicate any merit that comes from the giving or receiving of these words. <clears throat> to help strengthen our practice, to strengthen our zazen so that we can see every day as a good day and be of benefit to all beings. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become him. <clears throat>